Let's look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to take a look at the first 13 verses of the chapter this morning and get into, uh, like I said, something that is so, so important to our life now that, uh, like I said, hopefully we get a little fresh word this morning in, in what we read. But let's read this together. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So there is a tremendous amount here that we're going to talk about this morning, specifically in just the first four verses, and that's what we're going to get into right now. So in verse 1, it said, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and we need to stop there. I know, I know, you know sometimes we, we, we go verse by verse, and sometimes we go word for word, and we might do a little bit of that this morning, but there's so much importance to understanding why Pentecost. What does that mean? Why is that important? And how is that relevant to us today? So we're going to take a quick moment and do a little history lesson of at least three of the feasts that the Jews uh, celebrated according to God's word that he gave them to celebrate. So what we need to do, number one, if we talk about Pentecost, it's also known as the Feast of Weeks, which we'll, we'll come back to. And if you want to read a little bit more about that, you can, you can look at God's word in Exodus 34 or Leviticus chapter 23 and read how God outlined these for his people. However, we need to go back a little bit and talk about a few of them, or at least a couple of them, pertaining to why we would talk about Pentecost and why that's important. So number one, we need to talk about Passover. We've talked about it before, and it's very important to understand, but the Feast of Passover is representative of God's salvation from his judgment or wrath. Now, if you remember the story, and while the, the Jews were, were in uh, Egypt, God provided salvation for them, not by removing them from Egypt just yet, that will come, but from his judgment and wrath to come on Egypt itself. But they had to follow certain guidelines, and we read about that in Exodus chapter 12. That simply put, they had to sacrifice the lamb, right? And eat that lamb and take that lamb's blood and, and, and put it on the, the doorposts of the, their house and their dwelling where they were at. And a lot of other things that they had to adhere to and, and the Lord's Spirit would pass over their house. And God said in Leviticus 23 that this would be a feast that they would remember for generations to come. So that's one we need to understand. But it also points to the sacrifice of Jesus, does it not? 
We look at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we know what happened in Exodus 12 was a precursor to what Christ would do and the sacrifice he would give of himself when. Let's not forget, when was Christ crucified? At Passover in his day. Now, the second feast we need to bring some, some relevance to and some understanding of is called the, the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. It's actually very close to the celebration of Passover, but it represents gratitude for God's physical and, uh, excuse me, physical provision of food, but it also in itself points to the resurrection of Christ from the grave. How come? Well, it took place the day after Sabbath following Passover. Interesting. So if you know your timeline, Christ was crucified around Passover and then was resurrected when? The day after Passover and Sabbath. So the people would bring in their day to the temple of the priests their first fruits as they were gathering and getting together their crops ready for, for harvest and, and planting. They would go and cut a bundle of grain before it was completed and bring that to the temple as, an, as a precursor, as a down payment, as it were, as an offering to the Lord to thank Him for the provision of what He was going to provide. So before the harvest was even completed, they would bring their first fruits. And the priest would take those and, 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 and it would be an offering to the Lord. But what do we read in Scripture is how this is a precursor to Christ. That Jesus is defined in our word as first fruits. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So how does this represent his resurrection? Well, he was sacrificed, but then as we know and have studied and we learn and believe that he rose again on the third day. Because if you continue to read on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it defines us then to follow. That Christ, the first fruits, and us to follow as well. So we look at then this next feast. It's called the Feast of Weeks. Now, why do we know it as Pentecost? Because in the Greek, Pentecost means the 50th. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 23, you are to count 50 days from Passover to then celebrate the uh, Feast of Weeks. So in the Greek, they just translated 50 into Pentecost. So what does this feast represent? The presentation of that harvest to the Lord in its finality, so to speak. So they had offered their first fruits. 50 days later, they now offer the abundance of their harvest. Now, I want to make this connection that at the Feast of First Fruits, they didn't necessarily know or were promised or even guaranteed a full harvest, were they? In their day, what were they dependent upon? The weather, God's provision, faith in the Lord that He would provide. So now, 50 days later, if they have harvest, they bring now that to the Lord and thank Him for what He had provided. But what would they also bring? And this, I, this I found very amazing. According to God's word in Leviticus 23, they were to offer two loaves of bread as well. 
So the Feast of First Fruits, grain, and now at Feast of Pentecost, two loaves of bread. Well, you guys know, in God's word, there's meaning to everything. What was God establishing? That there are two people. There's one loaf called Jews and another loaf called Gentiles. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17? Paul would write, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So it was two loaves, two people, one body, one gift from the Lord of all. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift, right? The helper would come. Now, when did that help arrive? On the 50th day. From his resurrection, you count 50 days. This is why Pentecost is so important, because the Spirit arrived on day 50 during Pentecost. Now, just for a little extra understanding, some Jews throughout time would also associate Pentecost with the gift of the law that God gave to Moses on the mountain. Now, that's going to become a little more relevant to us in a little bit. But they would associate that gift of the law that God gave to Moses. And so when we look at the Old Testament or the Old Covenant versus the New Testament, the New Covenant under Christ and His Spirit, we're going to see how relevant that becomes. The, the law that the, God gave the people that they had to live by versus the new covenant in Christ. We're going to take a look at that further on as we, as we move forward in this. But all of it, pointing to the promised gift of the Holy Spirit that brings life and freedom. So what were they doing on Pentecost? They were continuing to gather. Doing what? We remember, right? They were in Jerusalem for these feasts, but they were gathering together, as we read in chapter 1, devoting themselves to what? Prayer. Waiting for the gift that Christ had promised prior to his ascension. So, verses 2 and 3, and, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The Holy Spirit shows up. So why in this way? Why this way? And a lot of us today kind of wonder, why don't we see these miraculous style events, presence of God appearing in, in such amazing ways anymore? Well, we take a look at it initially without a physical God-like representation. I'm not sure, and I think we can understand this. The disciples wouldn't know what to expect. How would they know the Spirit of God had arrived? They wouldn't have any understanding unless Jesus showed up and said, okay, he's here, and then he disappeared back into heaven. But that wasn't the plan. No, because the presence of God comes with what? Power. And that is something we need to understand today. In the presence of God, there is power. But it was a sound like wind. If we read carefully, it was uh, uh, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like wind a mighty rushing wind. So some scholars, some interpreters of this say that there actually wasn't physical wind. They weren't feeling this blowing of wind happening. It was just the sound of wind. You ever been in a, in a crazy windstorm? You know the sound that comes with that? Anybody ever been in and around a hurricane or a tornado? The sound of that wind? 
Some are interpreting the sound that took place to be like that. And we don't know specifically, but that's the guess of what's taking place. But a sound like when? If we go to the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the testimony of John the Baptist, this is what he would say about Jesus. In John 1, verse 32, he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. I know there's a lot of representations of the Holy Spirit as a dove, right? That's, that's what we see. And that was the best representation that John, in our vision as human beings, could give to the Spirit descending on Christ during his baptism. But it was like a dove. Was it an actual dove? No, they wouldn't use the word like a dove then. But that was the best representation they could come up with. So John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So there was an obvious delineation between John's ministry, baptizing with water, preparing the way for Christ, and now this Jesus Christ, who in his baptism was defined as the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Even in Jesus' words in John 3, 8, Jesus would say, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is movement in the Spirit of God in our life. There is power in the presence of God's Spirit in our life. Are we attuned to it? Are we listening for it? Are we prepared for it? So what does spirit mean? Outside of saying this is just the spirit of God, spirit translated actually means breath and wind. That's why it was referred to that mighty rushing wind. Spirit literally translates breath and wind, and we see that throughout Scripture. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This Spirit creates. The Spirit of God creates. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God created man and woman, what did He do? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. What is that? The Spirit of God giving life to His creation. So the Spirit creates and the Spirit gives life. What else do we read in Jesus' words? John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, the disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do? It creates it gives life, and it empowers you for what you are called to do. Jesus had given them the commission. He said, as God has sent me, so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. His Spirit empowers us to do what we're called to do. What do we also see happen on Pentecost? Tongues as of fire. So there's that language again we need to understand. There's a lot of people will just simply believe there was this actual physical fire, little, little tongues of fire just resting over people's heads. Now that may have been 
But was it actual tongues of fire? Well, the wording says they were as of tongues of fire. And there's a lot of different ways to read this, but in my understanding and my belief, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind that also came with it a physical representation of something that looked like fire. But it was as of fire hovering because God will manifest his presence in a powerful way. And in this case, it came with fire. But we see that throughout scripture, don't we? Back in Exodus, when God revealed himself to Moses, how did he appear? In a burning bush that was not consumed. When Elijah was battling the prophets of Baal up on the mountain, how did God show up? Fire from heaven, consuming the altar, consuming the sacrifice. God manifests himself in fire. So what are we seeing here? The presence of God in a powerful way appearing to the disciples. However, this could also be representative of what John the Baptist had said about Jesus. In Matthew 3, verse 11, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This could be a prophetic word that John the Baptist gave about what was going to happen at Pentecost. Do we know that for sure? No, not really. But it could be. But regardless, we know what fire can do. It can consume. But you know what fire also does? It purifies. This could be a purification moment for the disciples and what they were about to do and accomplish. In Isaiah 6, verses 6 through 7, in, in Isaiah's vision, he says, And the one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. We also see this in Zechariah 13, 9, something we may be familiar with because we sing it in a song, Refiner's Fire. Comes from Zechariah 13, 9, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So fire is a method for purification. But in all, what do we see happen in this moment? God showed up. God's Spirit came upon His disciples in an amazing way, through a powerful way. In verse 4, what do we read? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This right here has become one of the most controversial passages in a lot of different churches throughout time. And we're just going to clarify what it says here now, because I know... <clears throat> that the, the concept of speaking in tongues is something that can cause confusion. It can cause fear. There's not a lot of certainty as to what it really means, how it's used, why it's used in and out of the church. But we're going to start talking about it now and bring some clarity to it in time. But in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at that for a moment. So what took place on this day? 
on Pentecost is something we need to understand. It's not merely, simply, and only a display of God's power and presence. Because in all that God does, there is purpose in everything that He does. How He shows up, why He shows up, what He calls us to do, there is purpose in everything that God does. And that's what we need to understand. That's what the disciples were made aware of. They were both baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, don't forget, last chapter in Acts 1, verse 5, And John baptized with water, but Jesus said, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And if we read what we just did in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So at this moment, when the Spirit showed up, they were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happens when we surrender our life to Christ for the first time? We're baptized with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. When we surrender our life to Christ, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. For you, did that come with a mighty rushing wind? Did that come with a manifestation of a physical representation of a tongue of fire resting over your head? Were you starting to speak in other languages? No, maybe not. Most likely not. But did you have a powerful experience of God transforming your life from what was the old way into the new? Absolutely. Because he promises us his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When we surrender our life to Christ, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. He is with you. He is in you. He lives with you. And the word of God says he is there for how long? Forever. Always. But the outward display of that is represented by water baptism. We always talk about that idea that water baptism is just the outward display of what's taken place inside. We're baptized once with the Holy Spirit and the outward representation of that to share with the world and those around you is that process of water baptism. But it only needs to be done once, one time. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It goes on to say, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to the Lord for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Christ died once and rose again. We are baptized once to a new life in Christ and wait for that day when he brings us home to glory. When you're saved, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a moment in time for these disciples and what they're about to do where both of those things take place at the exact same time. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is something we're called to pursue all the time. There's a difference. We're called to pursue being filled by the Spirit on a continual basis. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. In fact, I'm going to have you turn there. If you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to spend a little bit of time here because it's something that I feel we need to really hone in on 
and take in and understand to the best of our ability. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the rendering of that verse, and you really look into the breakdown of it and the translation of it, it's pursuing that continual filling on a continual basis of the Spirit. So what does that look like? How do we do that? Is it something you've ever thought about? How do I continually pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit? Is that something I have to do? Well, now you're being told or, or under, having an understanding of the fact that, yeah, it is something to pursue. So how do you do that? Well, Paul made the comparison, as we just read in verse 18, of between getting drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. We're not going to talk too much about how to get drunk, but if you've ever been there, you know how that happens. What do you do? You drink, and you drink, and you drink, and you drink, and you drink. Do you only drink one thing in order to get drunk? No, you can drink multiple things, different types of things to get drunk. Whatever you decide to fill yourself with that eventually will alter your thinking and alter your mind so that you can eliminate yourself from the current and not really know what's going on. That's why there's, a, there's purpose in getting drunk with wine or alcohol today. People do it for a reason and eventually becomes an addiction. But Paul's saying here, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how do we get filled with this presence of God on a continual basis? The same exact way you get drunk with wine or alcohol. You drink him in, and you drink him in, and you drink him in, and you keep going until he transforms your thinking and your way of life. Does that make sense? In the spiritual way. Colossians 3 says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. So the more we're thinking about God, filling our mind with his word, pursuing the things of him, we are going to fill ourselves with the spirit. But Paul would go on in Ephesians 5, in fact, a few verses before he makes this comparison. In verse 15, he says, look carefully how you walk. Look carefully how you walk. Why? Not as unwise, but as wise. So we need to pursue what? The wisdom of God. And one of the primary ways we, we pursue the wisdom of God is through His written word. What He has provided for us. The more you are in Scripture, the more it's going to transform your mind and thinking about how you view this world. So as you walk, as you live your life, as you work and as you go to school, as you do all the things that you do, you're going to be thinking about those things from a perspective of the wisdom of God's Word. What does he say in verse 16? Making the best use of time, because why? The days are what? Evil. Making the best use of time. So evaluate for yourself, how am I spending my days? Now, this may be encouraging to some, it may be discouraging to others. But in all, I want to make it encouraging because it may change your mindset about how you're spending your days. And I thought this was very interesting. And in fact, if we look at this, someone mathematically calculated your lifespan into a 24-hour period, okay? Your lifespan into a 24-hour period. So what does that look like? 
If the day begins at 7 a.m., if you are 15 years old, the time is 10.25 a.m. See where we're going to go with this? Don't get discouraged. If you're 25, the time is 12.42 p.m. If you're 35, the time is 3 p.m. If you are 45, the time is 5.16 p.m. If you are 55, it's 7.34 p.m. And if you are 65, the time is 9.55 p.m. And if you are 70, the time is 11 o'clock at night. So it goes back to asking the question, how are you spending your days? Is it a revelation that this life goes quick? How are you spending your days? I don't want that to be discouraging. The reason I use that example is because I want you to start thinking about, okay, what do I need to now do? If the days are evil, how am I spending my days? How am I walking in the wisdom of God based on what time of day it is for my life and where I'm at and what God needs me to do, wants me to do? In, in verse 17 of Ephesians 5, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you do that? Well, it goes back to wisdom. But it also goes into the conversation you have with the Spirit of God that is with you. Ask him what his will is for your life. Now, we can generalize that and say, okay, live out the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Okay, but how are you going to do that? Everybody walks a different life. Everybody does different things. Have you sought the Lord? Have you asked him verbally, what is your will for my life? What do you need me to do? How do you want me to accomplish the Great Commission in what I'm doing now? That goes to conversation, prayer. James 4.2 says, you have not because you ask not. Have you asked the Lord what his will for your life is? And then he makes mention of what we just talked about, Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. If you are pursuing his wisdom, making the best use of your time, seeking his will for your life, then you will be filled with His Spirit if you stay focused on those things. And then he said the result of being filled with His Spirit is what comes next. Ephesians 5.19 says singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart because He is joy. He is love. And that is going to exude from you when you're filled with His Spirit. In verse 20, he says give thanks always. So have an attitude of gratitude. That's not just at Thanksgiving time. It's always. If His Spirit is with you always, then you should have joy in Thanksgiving always. It's the mark of somebody who's been filled by the Spirit. And in verse 21 in Ephesians 5, he says, submitting to one another. In a submissive spirit to what God wants us to do, we submit to Him, we submit to others. It is a, li a life lived in obedience to the Lord. So again, there is purpose to being filled by the Spirit. In the same way, there is purpose in filling up your car with gas or putting lights into a flashlight. How come? You put the power source into the vessel so it can be used for why it was created. There's a reason you put gas into the car. It is its power source. 
There's a reason you put batteries into a flashlight. It is its power source. So for us in the spiritual way, the Holy Spirit is our power source. We're just a vessel. So we need to continue to pursue the power and presence of the Spirit of God in our life so that we can be used for why we were created. Does that make sense? Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, then we are to keep in step with the Spirit. So as we're filled, as we walk in obedience, our filling is to serve God and fulfill His purpose for His glory. So the Holy Spirit showed up in a powerful way, baptized and filled these disciples so that they began to do what? Speak in these tongues. So let's take a quick moment and take a look at that as we close out our time together in this passage this morning. So the power and presence of God turned into praise and perplexity. So let's look at that. Verses 5 through 13. Verse 4 ended saying that they began to speak in tongues. It says now in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Don't forget what we talked about. This is during the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Pentecost. So some estimates say there were, could have been up to 2 million people in and around Jerusalem at this time. And as it goes on to declare, we won't read all the nations again, but, but they're there. They came from everywhere. And if you look at these nations, those listed in this passage, they're from the north, they're from the south, they're from the east, and they're from the west. Close by and far away. So what does that tell us? It is a representation of the world had shown up because the gospel through these disciples was to what? Go to all the world and preach the good news. But the manifestation of God's spirit came through speaking in other tongues. And what we gather from what these men in Jerusalem heard was these disciples speaking in their language. So at this time, they weren't speaking what's called ecstatic speech. They weren't mumbling and, 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 and clicks and, and, and weird sounds that maybe you've heard somebody speak in tongues before. That's not what they were doing. They were literally at that moment granted the gift to speak in languages they had never learned before, that they had never known. So people from these other nations were hearing their language, their tongue being spoken by these Galileans. How could this be that God, in an amazing, miraculous way, immediately granted them the gift to speak in other languages in the filling of the Spirit? Why? Well, one, it was evidence to the Jews that God has do, is doing something new. Could they have just continued to speak in, in their language of Greek and, and Hebrew and Aramaic? Sure. But this was a powerful manifestation that God was doing something brand new. That these Galileans, that people from Galilee, these disciples, and, and, and Scripture tells us that those that came from Galilee were not well looked upon by the rest of society. What good can come from Nazareth, someone said. They were typically unlearned, lower on the totem pole of society, and here they are praising God in languages they had never learned before. It, the purpose of the commission was to reach the ends of the earth. We mentioned that. Therefore, the need of the, of the gospel to be preached in other languages 
needed to happen. So God granted them that gift. There were at least 15 to 16 nations represented here. And what I love, one commentator put it this way, that this was a reversal of the chaos from the Tower of Babel. Now, I'm going to let you reread that story sometime if you need to. If it's been a while since you visited that story, but in Genesis chapter 11, you read about the Tower of Babel. And I'm just going to quickly sum up how this is a reversal now of what happened at Pentecost of that moment. It says, at Babel, God confused language and the people could not understand each other. What do we see happened at Pentecost? He unified their language under the praise of his name and all the people understood. At Babel, God scattered the people in their sin and pride. And at Pentecost, he brought people together by his Holy Spirit. At Babel, the people sought to glorify themselves, but at Pentecost, the people sought to glorify God. And at Babel, rebellion ensued, the chaos of what was going on. But at Pentecost, the disciples submitted themselves in obedience to the Lord and received his spirit in a mighty way. I thought that was kind of a a cool uh, look at what God had to do because men in their pride decided, we're going to be important. We're going to build this tower up into heaven to bring glory to us. But God says, no, I have my way. I have my plan that you're meant and created to glorify me and to do what I've called you to do. So the power and presence of God, what does it cause? We see two things happen in verses 12 and 13. Two things took place. It says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. It brings everybody to a decision point. The power and presence of God brings everybody to a decision point. You're going to want to know more or you're going to pass it off as crazy or drunkenness or something you don't want any a part of. There's no other option. And you all here may have come to that point already and chose God. Maybe you came to that point. You're still wondering. You're still asking questions like those others perplexed by the sound of what took place, by the the languages being spoken. What is happening? What does this mean? You're wondering and, and searching for more. But it brings everybody to a decision point. This even happened to Jesus in his ministry many times, didn't it? In all of his run-ins with the Pharisees. In fact, one of those times that we read about in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees were saying that everything that Christ was doing in his ministry, his healings, his miracles, was being done at the hand of the devil, calling him the devil. And Christ had a conversation with them and says, why would the devil drive out the devil? If he was setting people free from these evil spirits, why would the devil do that against himself? That's when the the, the passage Jesus would speak, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? If what I do is done by the Holy Spirit, then that's something that you Pharisees need to reckon with. So Jesus brought those Pharisees to a decision point. In Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me. 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That was the decision point that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it just simply means you just choose to reject the Spirit of God in your life. And why is that unforgivable? Because Christ and His Spirit is the only way. And without Him, you will suffer the wrath and judgment and eternal separation of God. You come to a decision point. What are you going to choose? If you have not made that choice, do so today. If you have made that choice, then you've also been given an encouragement and challenge to continue to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. We've given you some scripture and understanding as to how to do that. Now, a lot of people will ask, well, if we pray hard enough and ask for it, will God manifest himself in a mighty, powerful way? The answer is, that's up to the Lord how he's going to manifest himself to you, but what he has told us by his word that we can believe in and hold true to is that when you have sacrificed and given yourself up from this world to Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. He is with you. So now you pursue him. Pursue that voice through prayer, through his word, through keeping your mind set on things above. And I guarantee you, you will experience the power and presence of God in a, an amazing way, in a fresh way, in a new way. And maybe a lot of you sitting here need that today. So let's go to the Lord and seek Him in, in, in a moment of time now. And then we'll close out our time with some, some worship. Let's pray.